The classic story always begins with once upon a time. Exploring the world for the greatest stories of all time. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Aaron O'Dowd Show. The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Our soul is the screen upon which we project our dreams. What's your story? Hello and welcome on today's episode of the Aaron O'Dowd Show. We've got Lloyd Chambers. I met him a couple of weeks ago through uh, another guy called through the Noble Golan platform. And I got to chat with Lloyd and wow, what an amazing guy. And he should come onto the show and share his depth of knowledge and what he does and everything. Hello, welcome to the show, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. And uh, yeah, no, absolute pleasure to meet you. Uh, previously and also a pleasure to be asked if you come on to the show here today i'm excited to uh, to speak to your viewers and to share any value that i can with anyone who's interested in the world of personal growth and of understanding a little bit more about where we are coming from so that we can understand where we are and where we're going to go in our lives and uh, in our finances also so, Lloyd, give us a bit of background about um, where you're from, what you do, just to give the listener an idea of, of where you're at. Okay. So, I'm from Black Rock in Dublin. So, I come from a middle class background, I suppose. Uh, I, I, I suppose well, growing up, I was actually quite a quiet child. Yeah, in, at least in times I wasn't particularly the, you know, the most fashionable kid or the, you know best liked or best at sport or any of those things my thing was i used to like to read and write poetry and i was every, like you know the, the, we used to have readathons when we were in school i don't know if they have still have those things uh, so you know reading a hundred books in the year in the school year that type of thing so I, i've always been really interested in knowledge not particularly interested in the way that in the, the education system was run, particularly. So we had, we were at loggerheads, myself, authority figures of one kind or another uh, through the educational system. Um, but, you know, I always had a passion in people, in culture, in how social structures work. So I ended up uh, doing an, a degree in anthropology. So I remember a few times I went for interviews after I qualified, right? And the question for most people were, what is anthropology? And it seems that I didn't realize at the time that almost very few people seem to know what it is. And even less know how it's applied to the workplace, okay? Which included me when I finished university. So I discovered that I'd done a degree in something that nobody knows what it is for the most part. And that, therefore, they don't see it as something relevant for the job that you're interviewing for. <laughs> so, so when interviewing for a simple job, like working in Spire, you become overqualified for the job because you have a degree um, in something nobody knows what it is. And then when they do know what it is, they go, well, what relevance has that got to the workplace? So it's an interesting road that I went down because I was told, as many of us are, that... You go to school to get a good education, to get a job. They don't tell you that you should choose things that the market actually wants or needs. Nobody mentions that. So at the time when I was doing, uh, looking kind of secondary school, heading towards the leaving certificate and all that, everybody was doing uh, business degrees. So I went to the institute to do business in the evening. Uh, thinking that maybe that would be a good thing to do, maybe go into a business degree. But I, I didn't really like the concept. I felt like anyone doing business degrees were going to end up working for a bank or in commerce, working nine to five jobs, which was not very exciting for me. So I decided that when I finished university that I would head off. First of all, I started working as a chef, and then I did a TEFL, so teach English as a foreign language and uh, decided to go off and travel the world. So that's sort of where I was able to apply my interest in different diverse cultures and structures of society and stuff around the world and go do something practical 
go and live among people who think different to me, who operate different to me, in many cases have different religions, different social structures, different family structures than we would have here in Ireland. Uh, it kind of opened my eyes to the fact that we do things a certain way because we are conditioned to do them in that way. It does not mean it's the right way to do things. It does not mean it's the uh, the only way to do things. It doesn't mean things can't be improved upon. It just means that's what we're programmed to think, do, and have opinions on. So one of the, maybe I should explain what anthropology is. I imagine most of your... That was my... You must have beat me to that. I was just going to ask you, what, <laughs> what is that? Sure you must be reading my mind. Most of your listeners probably know what it is at this point, but back in 2002, wasn't as well known. So <clears throat> anthropology is the study of people and cultures and the origins of society. In other words, man's adaptation to whatever situation you may put him in. So you put him in a jungle, he adapts. Put him in a city, he adapts. He or she, obviously. And then, you know, you put them into complex structures. They behave differently. There's a necessity to create, uh, well, hierarchical structures uh, become necessary when you have a lot of people uh, in the same place. So you have to create some sort of rules for people to run, like wow. to keep from complete anarchy. Now, so the idea being that hunter-gatherers, okay, so groups of up to 125 people, can happily live with a set of rules that don't, they don't really need to be specific about those rules. Everybody understands how to behave. But every single person has a relationship with all 124 others. So in that group, now I'm not a mathematician, but it's a lot of relationships if you add up everybody's relationship with everybody else. Mm -hmm. right? And so you can only maintain so many relationships at a time <coughs> without causing conflict. Now, as I see it, for the last 300 years, we've been working on the principle of Darwin's theory of evolution now referred commonly as evolution, though it is still the theory of evolution as far as I'm concerned. And what that basically said, he looked at nature, he looked at um, carnivorous game animals, who were predators essentially, um, and then from that drew the, the conclusion that it's survival of the fittest and that therefore the world is based on conflict and competition. Now, I don't agree with that at all, okay, which causes some issues when I talk to other people about this. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in evolution because people really lose the rag if you even suggest such a thing. What I am saying is, is that cooperation and mutual aid is also very evident in uh, the way animals and plants and mushrooms and so on communicate in the world. So let's give you another example. If you were to look at a forest, underneath the forest, in fact, everywhere underneath the, the, the earth, right across the planet, you have something called mycelium. So it's kind of like the internet of the uh, plant uh, world, mm -hmm. let's say. Okay. So if a lot of locusts, for example, come into the edge of a forest, it will trigger those trees that are closest to the edge to send messages via their roots, which is picked up by the mycelium and it's through protein transfers and that sort of stuff. And they send signals right across the forest floor underneath the ground. And they let other, all the other plants know to close their petals so that they don't get damaged by whatever this pestilence is. Right? Mm -hmm. So in that environment, it's complete cooperation of one tree in the middle not getting enough sunlight, the other trees give it nutrients through the mycelium so that the whole ecosystem can survive. Now, how do we use this uh, system for the last 300 years? I wonder what the world would look like. Possibly not the way it's looking at the minute, I'm thinking. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so I like to turn, turn things on their head. I've always been like that, usually not in such a constructive way as I've now decided to more recently. But uh, for a very long time, 
I was traveling around the world trying to avoid any concept of the nine to five, just simply because I saw it as selling out in some way. And I viewed money as bad. Okay, so a lot of your listeners are likely to relate to this because if you grew up in Ireland, even though my family are Protestant, or at least they were, although we were never baptized, maybe, so it wasn't something that was being taught to us. But nonetheless, if you're in a society where primarily the education is mixed with uh, dogma of one kind or another from whatever religion you happen to, whatever depends on the country that you're born into, everybody's born into a belief system that goes right down into the language that we use about things. So you've got different paradigms that people use, such as money is the root of all. Everybody can finish it. Everybody knows the next word is evil. All right? Mm-hmm. It's lonely at the top. Everybody knows that. Right? It doesn't mean it's true. It just means that everybody can recognize that sentence and they repeat it over and over in our society. And so we therefore distrust wealthy people because we think they're bad. So if you imagine you've got a hammer, okay? So depending on whose hands the hammer is in, it has a different function, but it's still a, a tool, right? So I'll give you an analogy. Let's say you've got some nails, you've got a nice wall, let's say it's above a fireplace in a nice office or a, or a, or a living room or, or whatever, and you've got a nice picture. Now, you try to put up that picture and hammer in some nails using your palm of your hand and just see how you get on. How useful is your hand as a tool in this situation? Not great. Right? No, it's going to cause a lot of yeah. a bloody situation at the very least. Mm-hmm. You need, or at least it's a useful tool if you have a hammer at this point, right? So you don't love the hammer, but it's very useful when you need it for a certain function, in this case, put up a picture, okay? So let's say you hammer in some nails, put up the picture, you have the string and everything, and it's all very nice. Now the room is more aesthetically pleasing. Now the room is more beautiful. Now there's a better flow and energy, and if you're into feng shui or any of that sort of stuff, there's a nicer flow of energy to the room because of what you've done using this hammer, which is a tool, okay? Mm-hmm. Now you take away the wall, the painting, the nails, and all you've got in your hand is a hammer, you could very easily use that as a weapon. But it's the same hammer. So my point is, is that if we look at money and call it bad, we're missing the point. So money in the hands of people who are good-hearted, whose focus is on servant leadership, whose focus is on helping other people, enriching the world, looking after people who can't look after themselves, empowering people around the world to make better choices then money is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing because it allows people more choices. So I'll give you an example. You go through a town, there's been a tornado, the town's destroyed. If you haven't got a shekel in your pocket, you can do nothing about it. Let's say you go out and you, you want to raise the money. If nobody knows you. You, you. you don't know how to raise money. Okay, You can't help those people no matter how much your heart tells you you'd love to help them. Okay, okay. You have learned that money is a tool to do good things or bad things, depending on the type of person you are. And you go through that town and you have the money to resolve it. And you go, look, don't worry. First thing we're going to do is let's get the school back up and running. Let me take care of everybody. But let's put a plan in place for everybody to start helping themselves. And you can suddenly are in a position where you can help that situation. Whereas you couldn't have, if you didn't have access to any capital, so in that situation, you've used your understanding that money is a tool to go after it for the purpose of enriching the lives of others and to give you options to be able to help people, right? Right. <laughs> but if you think money is bad, you're never going to go after it, in which case you're one of the people standing in the queue going, oh, it's everybody <laughs> else's fault except my fault, right? Yeah. So if you don't take responsibility for where you are at, you're going nowhere good. You can just be angry and be defiant and play the blame game or just be completely apathetic and say, oh, well, it's all going to hell anyway. Or you can start to take responsibility for where you're at, look at forgiveness, 
<laughs> start forgiving yourself for doing silly things in the past, get over it, don't give yourself a hard time, start moving towards cooperation and collaboration, mm-hmm. suddenly we have a totally different model of the world where we're all moving in the right direction and we're all excited to be here. We've got something important to do and we're making an impact, positive impact. And you can't do that without access to wealth. So whether it's your wealth or whether you're raising the money, you can't do it without the wealth because the wealth just allows you to have more options. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, I appreciate in the Instagram generation, people are using that money to go and you know, drive around <laughs> speedboats <laughs> speed and throwing money out of cars and all this sort of nonsense. Uh, but nonetheless, well, so what? If that's what they want to do, that's their own business. They're the ones who earn it. So rather than looking at them saying, oh, you shouldn't have that, it's your fault and I'm not in a good situation. No, it's not. It may not be your fault that you are where you are, but it's definitely your problem. So I don't mean you, obviously. (laughs) I mean, like, whoever's listening, right? So where you're at in life is your your problem. You've got to solve it. So you can't solve it by looking around, pointing fingers, telling everyone else it's their fault. You've got to take responsibility, and that's how we move forward, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm on a mission to show people, and through my own uh, example, I might add, right, that there is an alternative to the way that we're living right now. And standing around blaming the government and all this other nonsense is not going to fix it. Yes, obviously, if you ask anybody, do you think the government or politicians, let's say, have your best interest at heart? One out of ten people might say yes. Nine out of ten say no, yeah. of course not. Yeah. You go, do you think they're being paid more than their job is worth? Most nine out of ten people say yeah. Uh, so we all know that taxes are higher than they should be, interest rates on our money that we put in the bank are shocking and there's basically no point putting the money in there. And they also know that the government doesn't have our best interests at heart. And yet, we still turn up, go to work, pay our taxes, and be good citizens because we're programmed to do that. So instead of giving out and complaining about everything, why should we look at other alternatives so that we can find ways to generate revenue through other ways other than selling our time in exchange for money. So one of the things we talk about in this noble Goldman, this mastermind that we are both a part of and that you know you kind of touched on earlier is there are three ways that wealth creation is done in the world. It doesn't matter obviously there's lots of different things you can do inside of these three categories, these three strategies, but there are only three. Okay, the first is and it depends on what it is that you invest. Okay. So the first one you, you don't invest, you sell. Okay. So it's called M1 strategy. You sell your time in exchange for a monetary uh, reimbursement. So sell your time for money. Okay. It's called a job. Everybody's probably heard of it. So that's great. That's what 150 years ago factories needed workers which is what our schooling system is designed to create workers. It's not designed to create entrepreneurs or free people. Um, And 96% of the world do this, 95, 96, give or take. They earn only 1% of the wealth on the planet. Now, I'm no mathematician, but if most of the people are doing it and they're earning a tiny part of the wealth created, that's clearly not effective. And then why are we doing it? And so do we oftentimes actually question why you got to go to work, uh, go, to, go to, uh, to school and get a job to pay your taxes and retire? Why would you do that? Like retirement is the worst case scenario. What is it, 270 something a, a week? How are you going to live on that? Wow, yeah. I mean, like, this is ridiculous. Like, mm-hmm. And so the pensions are also being depleted. So now when we pay our income tax, it's going to pay off people who are retiring, of which there are going to be more and more, because apparently our health system is in a mess. There's more people living longer, life expectancy is going up, etc. Or how is that system meant to work for anybody? It's not. 
Uh, and so that's pretty obvious when you step out of it, but not so easy to understand when you're in. Because I obviously had a job and eventually got a nine to five job under duress. <laughs> and uh, and I, re- I realized that it was not something that I wanted to do, that I went there because they were paying me quite well for the work that I was doing. I had more money than I really needed as long as I didn't have any responsibilities. So at the time I was single, didn't have any kids. So for me, a job for 32 grand a year was. It was doable. But you add in a child, uh, you know, increasing rents and things like that, suddenly that's no longer viable, right? So, and then over time, you're likely to have more children, right? Mm-hmm. For the most part. Or more dependence and more responsibilities and car, maybe someone wants another car, and, you know, they want a, like a holiday home <laughs> or one of these other things, and suddenly there's all these liabilities everywhere. Money's gone out of your account every 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 month to pay for these things you don't really need, and then your wages don't go up. Very much. How did you um? How did you get from a guy who didn't was running away from a job and then into a nine to five nine to five job? Um. Well, okay. So basically, I. I didn't want to do a nine-to-five job because I didn't like the thought of sitting in one place and anybody telling me what to do, basically. That's the very simplistic explanation. So when I got to a certain age, I don't know what age it would have been, like 30 or so, I said, um, at this point, I just want a job with a guarantee. Because from 28 until about 32, I, I, I started... Yeah, when, I'll tell, let me rewind a little bit. So 2008 happened. That's what changed it for me. So I was traveling around the world. I think I was in Spain at the time. I was in, living in Barcelona. Everything's going great. The world economy falls apart. Uh, casual jobs, let's say, or jobs you just you can pick up a job here or there or do you know something to, to take you over, bring some money in, started to dry up. Spain, even now, there's not that much work there. So you can imagine what it was like just after the crash in 2008, right? Mm-hmm. There's no more work. And the work that people did have was the, the price it was dropped that they were being paid. So I was like, as of, as of somebody who's not from there, who probably wouldn't be going to local places and might cost a living was a little bit higher, I was like, nah, if this isn't going to work for me. So I moved back to Ireland. I had to move back to the family house because I didn't... Uh, I hadn't made any plans for my future at that point. And there was no work in Ireland either. So I went for an interview uh, where they talked about opportunity rather than guarantees. And I was immediately suspicious right? <laughs> at the time. And I was like, oh, I don't like the sound of that. But then I thought, well, there's no other jobs. So what am I supposed to do? I've got a degree in anthropology. Realistically, why, how employable am I right now? So, anyway, so I went on another, the second round interview, and I got brought around selling cosmetics door to door in, where was somewhere up in North Dublin? I think it actually was in Dundalk, in Loud, kind of council estate, going door to door. I was like, what on earth is this? So it turns out it was door to door selling. Right. So by some people's standards, this is the lowest of the low. By anybody who's in sales, is this is the most difficult job out there in terms of mindset. So it's like a baptism of fire. So if you ask anybody in the sales environment, if you tell them that you've been doing door-to-door and were successful at it, they'll give you a job straight away. Because they know you have what it takes mentally to deal with rejection all day, every day weeks and months and years on end um, which would give you a fairly thick skin so that being said I started in that company and they had a sort of business development program I suppose and I, uh, eight months later I was running my own office with 25 people in it and I got given an office to run down in the Waterford city and uh, that went very well uh, making lots of money but working Crazy, 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 crazy hours. Um, 
And then my partner at the time, she said to me, I watched this, I read this book, or maybe she saw the movie called The Secret. (laughs) To give you an idea where my mind was at at the time, I was like, that sounds like a load of nonsense. So my idea was to get to do well in life because of my opinion that I held, which was an opinion about how money is made, that the only way to make money is by hard work, by pushing yourself, by struggle, by strife, by, you know, elbow grease kind of thing, uh, that I didn't believe there was anything called the law of attraction. I didn't believe that you bring about what you think about. I didn't believe any of that stuff. I thought it was complete garbage. So I wasn't very elevated in my consciousness, let's say. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So I moved in and opened an office in Leeds, and then I opened another office up in Stockton-on-Tees, uh, up in side in northeast of England for a couple of years. And then I moved back to Ireland, ran a hair extension wholesale business as a managing director. I worked in my father's business, the marketing manager, and all these other things. And eventually I said, you know what? I can't work for my family. I love them, but I just can't do it. And I was looking at where can I find somewhere where there'll be some progression. In other words, if I'm good at what I do and I get better at it, can I get a better position? Is it a company that has a bit more scope? And a family business oftentimes doesn't have that. This is why it's not attractive for a second or third or fourth child to go into a family business because what are they going to get out of it? Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I got a job, uh, and at this point, sales was the only jobs anyone would give me. At this point, because I'd been in sales, and therefore they thought that's what I was suitable for, which is ironic because sales is not something that I'm particularly passionate about. But I'm good at it because I had to learn it. Uh, but I, you know, I rather coach people and train people than help people to bring out the best in themselves and go around selling stuff. Quite frankly. But anyway, I started working for a company in Dublin, one of the top three um, market research aggregators in the world, based in Dublin. And I got in there as a digital sales manager and inside, international inside sales manager, and I worked that job for a year and a half or so. And, um, you know, I came across the work of Bob Proctor, Again, the guy who was in the secret that I thought was hilarious a couple of years prior. And uh, and I looked at it and I said, wow, okay. So this program he had was a 12-step program. Okay, Not the same as an AA program, mind you, but it's happened to have 12 steps. And it had, uh, you know, how to get you from where you are, not having a clear direction, getting clear on your on your goal, like a, a, a goal that is big enough to scare you and excite you in equal measure, um, overcome your limiting beliefs and all the rest of it, and how to interact with people to create better results, leaving people with an impression of increase, and also the concept of the mastermind, which comes from that book, Think and Grow Rich. So if any of your listeners haven't heard this, there's a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, written 1937, And it's about 500 of the wealthiest men in the world at that time, just after the Great Depression, Wall Street crash, 1929. And it talks about what success habits did they have, right? Not magic dust, not who they're related to, not because they're horrible people, not because of all of the nonsense that we think is the reason why people are successful, rather their habits. So there are success habits that they had, right? 13 principles in the book. That book is the basis of personal development industry, all of it, wow. for the most part. No, most all of it, 90%, let's say. And every book written about that topic is usually coming from that book, Think and Grow Rich, and another one called The Science of Getting Rich. Okay. And as a man, think it's that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> Bob Proctor has been reading that book since 1961. Now, he's a- I'm a slow reader. <laughs> he reads the book. 
a small bit of it because the information in it changes as your mindset changes and your awareness changes in relation to what the information means. So it's not a novel. It's a, a workbook or a document that you can use to learn and apply those principles and those habits in your own life to create better results for yourself. So rather than copy, for want of a better word, loser behavior, why not copy winner behavior is the idea. And so I went to a, um, a seminar in Dublin run by a lady called Eva Pietrek. Anyone who's Polish here now, I hope I pronounced that probably. Um, and she is a consultant, one of the top consultants for Bob Proctor. And in fact, both of the top two uh, consultants in the world for Bob Proctor, ironically, are in Ireland. Wow. If you include North and South as one island, one's up in uh, Belfast, I think. Yeah, which is really interesting. Um, and so anyway, so I went to I went to this this uh, seminar and I looked at it and I said, you know what, I think this is what I need right now. I was kind of, you know, you know yourself, if you're working a job and you're not really inspired and you're like, what am I doing this for? Okay, I'm making more money. What do you do? What am I going to do with the money? I want to do something of relevance. I want to do something that's inspiring. I want to do something that has some significance to me. What? I'm not allowed to take more time off from my job in order to go and do those things with the money that I'm earning in the job. So what am I going to do with it? All right, so jobs are great when you're earning a lot of money and you're like, well, I've got all this money. And like, well, what are you going to do with it? You can't take time off because you've got to work. They, they limit how many holidays you can take. So where are you meant to spend this money other than in your house and on random things you don't need? to give yourself that feeling of I'm there, wherever there is. This is my issue with the whole selling your time for money thing. So if I look at those three strategies again, of which I only mentioned first, there are, there are three of them. And Bob Proctor talks about this as well, right? So the three of them are, the first is you sell your time in exchange for money. Okay, we've, we've established that's not very constructive, even though everyone does it. It also means, by the way, if you do anything other than that, 96% of the population not qualified to give you advice on whether you should or shouldn't be doing something different. This is something that took me a while to figure out. People were telling me, oh, that will never work, or, oh, is that legal? How is, like, a different way, a different model to create wealth other than going to work? should not be distrusted just because people go to work. It's just it, when, you, when you step back outside of the system a little bit and you look at it, you're like, if you look at the facts, going to work a job makes almost no sense. And people who are working a job oftentimes are distrustful of those who either run a business or have a, a you know, I don't know, a Forex business or an affiliate marketing business or a network marketing business or something like that, they're, they're distrustful of them because they look from inside of where they are at rather than looking at the whole picture. So I think that the second option is to use and invest money to make money. So everyone's familiar with um, Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's one of the well, he is the most successful investor of all time, and he famously said, "Invest in your number one asset, which is yourself." Okay, and then you've got people like Richard Branson, who said, "If somebody offers you a great opportunity, you should say yes and then figure it out afterwards, because there's lots of opportunity out there in the world." Now, I'd rather be prepared and ready for an opportunity and not have one than to have an opportunity and not be ready. So what I'm passionate about is helping people to get ready in their mind uh, to, to, to see the alternatives that are out there for themselves. I think that's really important because you can't see that they're there and you're not looking and you're not open. 
doesn't matter how good it is, it'll pass it by. So if you want to sit on the sidelines and watch other people be successful and lead a better life, more fulfilling life, more time for themselves, spend more time with their kids, go on more holidays with their spouse or partner or whatever, and you want to watch that while you're living in a life you're not happy with, then off you pop, go ahead, no problem. But if you're thinking to yourself, hey, you know what, I would be interested to know that there is other alternatives out there, I wonder what they are, and how can I learn to understand them? And that's what I, that's what I focus on. Did, did these books get you to that point of help you to get to that, this point that you're talking about? Not on their own, no. Because a book, like, it's like, okay, look, if I read a, 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 a university document, right, let's say, like, you know, like a course book, and I learn about the theory of something, unless I actually do it, I don't really have any real understanding of it. So we go to school and we're educated to, you know, read theory and regurgitate it in exams 12 hours later half it's forgotten anyway so i mean just because you know something doesn't mean you're going to do something if we did what we knew how to do nobody would be in a situation they didn't want to be in nobody at all so the books alone aren't going to get you there no what you need is to be around a group of like-minded people. So I'll give you an example. If you're looking around right now and all of the people around you are working a job and are, you know, get paid on a Friday and are broke by Sunday and they give out about the government and they complain about taxes and they cause strife and drama with the people around them because they're not happy in their own selves. If that's what you're seeing every day, that's what you're going to get reflected in your own life. End of story, the law of association. That's not anybody's fault, but it is their problem, right? So, and it's also your problem if that's the environment that you're in, right? So, like I said, 96% of the world are going to work for a job. And so you're surrounded by nine, 95% of the people around you are going to be doing that, right? And you've noticed that the other 5% tend to hang around with one another. Why? Because then they don't have to listen to those types of conversations that they would perceive to be negative, talking about why things can't be done and why everything's hard and I can't afford it and I can't do this and I can't do that and I'll try. I'll try. I'll try what? So if you say, I will, you change the energy completely. I'll try means I might fail and I might not even bother really to actually commit to anything because I'm giving myself an outright there. So you've got to surround yourself with the right people. So if you're surrounding yourself with people who are investing heavily in their number one asset, which is themselves, and they are around this type of information, they're looking for ways to be better, to have more value that they can share with other people, make more of an impact in the world in a positive way, you are going to get better just by association. So if you're also then studying the same stuff, you're discussing it with people who actually understand it, and you're in that whole process, like in the mastermind, I suppose, um, not only there, but, you know, like they're just groups of people who have a shared interest and a shared like-mind kind of attitude, then you're going to see marked improvements in where you're at. Like, so I don't think reading the books alone is enough. Um, Coming back to um, those those three um, those three strategies, the first, as we've discussed, is excelling your time for money. The second is investing money to make money. Now that's great if you know what you were doing. So most people don't have a financial education. They don't like risk because they're taught to fear risk. They think that money is bad and therefore you know, generating money in the market somehow is dangerous and scary. And, you know, words like that we use to stop ourselves from doing what we might like to do, um, which is a learned behavior, by the way, is that we don't go and do that. So what people might do is they might save up a few quid or euros or whatever on over the months and perhaps years, right? They get a little nest egg side and their partner wants to spend it on a, on a down payment on a house. They go, no, i got a better idea. Let's go and do some trading. 
<laughs> they go and find a broker somewhere and they pick a broker who's got a really low minimum. Like, so normally brokers are anywhere from $350 to $500 as a minimum that to set up the account and then you trade with that money. You don't need to trade at all, obviously, but that's what you need to kind of put some skin in the game to show you're serious. What people will do, though, is they'll go find one who does it for 150 quid, right? which yeah. is not to be trusted, not accredited, not authorized, no checks and balances. And even if they make money, they never see it. These people disappear. So this is what most people do. So then they run back to their first strategy and go, that's not for me. It didn't work. But what they didn't do is talk to people who know what they're doing, find a group of people who actually have that information. Someone, there's lots of courses and programs you can do to learn Forex. I just started doing it a couple of days ago, literally a few days ago. And uh, <clears throat> my girlfriend also joined it with me to like a training program for Forex. And she's already doing trades downstairs right now. While I'm up here talking to you, instead of looking at Instagram, is what she might have been looking at. Instead, now she's doing trades and she's making a profit on day two. Now, it's in cents, wow. euros, but yeah. it's not because she's betting with cents. Right? She's not betting with euros, she's betting with cents until she can develop an understanding while you know, going through the training and understanding how the market works and stuff. And to me, I don't really get it. But it's okay if I don't get it. I've got a training system so I can learn it. So my understanding is this. If you have a rudimentary understanding of anything, you can learn it and become an expert at it. And I believe we can have a rudimentary understanding of almost anything. So rather than saying that's not for me because I'm not smart, I'm not this, I'm not that, which is total garbage, we just simply need to know that there are alternatives that we could pursue should we want to. And when we made the decision that we want to, then we go look for people who have success doing just that. And we find people that we can trust who are like-minded, who have our interests at heart as well as their own, and are willing and open to working collaboratively with us to succeed in whatever it is we want to do. That's how you leverage the second strategy. Okay. okay. The third strategy is something called multiple streams of income. And you might say, well, okay, but the first and second is a stream of income. And yes, yes, it is. The difference is, is what do you invest? So the first one, you sell your time for money. The second one, you invest money to make money. The third, you invest your time to make money. I say, well, how does that work? So you invest your time to learn a skill or a talent. So, like, there's lots of people who go out and become a consultant. Right? Oh, I've been in this industry for a while. I know what I'm doing. I do project management. I can do this coaching, whatever. And I'm going to learn that skill and the talent, and then I'm going to go sell it by the hour, just like strategy number one, which we all know isn't effective because you have to be there to make the money. And you might notice that the wealthiest people in the world don't work. You've likely noticed that if you look around. Yeah. You don't see them. They're not mm -hmm. going out to work on a Monday morning, right? So everybody in the middle is, and everyone at the, at the tail end is, but the other ones are not. It doesn't make them bad people. It just means that they know something that other people do not. And so if there's knowledge there that can be that's available, what would likely be a good idea is to study winner behavior. It's like anything. So, mm -hmm. Okay, well, who is doing this successfully? Okay, who are they? Great. What are they doing? Okay. How are they doing what they are doing? So it's oftentimes not what you do, but the way in which you do it is that determines how successful it will be. So... In other words, the mentality that you have when you do it. And that comes from awareness and it comes from understanding. So King Solomon said, without getting overly biblical about it, he said, with all thy getting, get understanding. So 
generally people do things out of ignorance because they don't know. A, they don't know there is an alternative. And if they do know there's an alternative, they distrust it for some reason that's ingrained in their behavior and their learned beliefs and stuff from when they're growing up or the society they're born into or the part of society or the whatever that they're in, right? And the people around them and whatever they're talking about, the language that they use about talking about stuff, right? So this last third strategy, you're investing time to learn a skill and an asset, uh, sorry, skill and a, a talent to develop an asset. Okay, so what is an asset? So we have, there's a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by a guy called Robert Kiyosaki. He's from uh, Hawaii. I'm assuming he's uh, a Japanese descent from the name, but I don't know for sure. Uh, but nonetheless, he's a very interesting guy. He also wrote a book called Cash Flow Quadrants. He talks about this whole area. Um, and what he essentially talks about is that there's liabilities and there are assets. So liabilities are anything where money is coming out of your account every month. Anything. Okay? And assets is anything where money is coming into your account every month. Okay? Now, the, the thing about assets is money comes in without you doing anything. Okay, so, and we, people buy liabilities, right? So the people who are doing strategy number one, selling their time for money with a job, are taught by society and the media and the rest of it to buy liabilities. So what happens when your TV license comes around? Money goes out, right? What happens when your phone bill comes in? Money goes out. What happens when your internet bill comes in? Money goes out. What happens when your car payment is due? Money goes out. What happens if you buy petrol? Money goes out. These are all liabilities. Okay? What happens when your mortgage comes? Money goes out. It's a liability. We're taught that our house is an asset if we live in it. Only in comparison to renting. But if you're in comparison to what an actual asset is, it's not an asset at all because money is coming out of your account pay for it every month, right? You have a rented property, so you buy a property, you don't live in it, you rent it out, the rent is higher than whatever the mortgage is, which would be normal, otherwise why would anyone do it? And then whatever the extra is that's coming into your account as profit, that's an asset. If you're living in it and paying for it, it's a liability. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So MASI is anything that you develop that is an asset where you do the work once and the money keeps coming in residually. So I'll give you an example. I wrote a book called Visualization to Realization, uh, which is you know, helping people plot the path to their success by using visualization techniques. Now, obviously, yourself as an athlete, um, you know, well, perhaps not as a visually impaired athlete. I don't know how that works, to be quite honest, so I can't comment on that. But just in, in the more general terms, as athletes tend to visualize their success before it happens. Right? So visually, they run the race or they compete in the race and they do it in their mind first. So a lot of that training is psychological. So people who are like, let's say, running a marathon, everybody hits the wall at 22 kilometers or whatever it is, 20, 20 miles to hit the wall. The only thing that gets through gets you through there is not your body, it's your mind. Right? And so they visually and uh, uh, prepare themselves for that. You get people like Oprah who, who, and Tony Robbins who talk about the, the power of visualization. That lady, I don't know her name, who created Spanx. She was 15 years old when she first said to herself, I'm going to be sitting in front of Oprah as a billionaire, this is five years before she even had the idea of Spanx. And 10 years later, 25 years old, the youngest female billionaire sitting in front of, of Oprah. 
right? Yeah, I have Conor McGregor, although <laughs> recently defamed a little bit. Oh, we won't go into too much detail yeah, there, yeah, but yeah. but he uh, talked about you say you see it, you visualize it, you say it, and you do it. That's it. And so that's how success is done right across the board. And so that's what I focus on doing right now. That book, myself and my business partner, Jackie Carroll, uh, we co-wrote the book. Bob Proctor, uh, who quite a few remember years back, I didn't even believe the secret was a real thing, uh, kindly wrote the foreword for the book, which is interesting because he hasn't oh. written foreword for anybody in 15 years. So it's pretty sweet. Amazing. But uh, that book is an asset because the, we paid cost money to get it to print cost money to you know it took time that we invested with our skill and talent to write the book and all that stuff but the book has been written so three whatever a year ago or more we spent three and a half months four months writing the book we spent some money to get it to print and all that stuff nice cover and all the rest of it but now every time that sells there's a profit margin all right so that's an asset that there will, it'll sell forever. And likely a lot of your uh, listeners, well, not likely, but quite possibly might want to read it. So let's say anybody here goes, clicks on the link on Amazon, uh, and we'll likely put the links in as well. And they'll click on it and they'll buy the book, right? It'll get delivered to their door. They're happy. They're going to hope that they're going to get a lot of value from they apply the principles their life will improve if they apply them uh, consistently and some portion of that profit goes to paying off the initial cost but when that's paid off that's revenue residual passive income that will come in forever so that's an asset does that make sense make complete sense so we're not taught to create assets now, to be fair, most people don't make money off books. That's not the point. You know, books have various different reasons, like social leverage and all these other things, social proof and things like that. But nonetheless, I also have a course that I bring people through, showing them how to find their life's purpose, how to visualize, how to make proper vision boards, how to make it real for yourself and all these other things that we, we do with our clients. Um. And this is also an asset because we did the work, we created the videos, we doing all that, and we'll, you know, we, we uh, obviously bring people through a process. We support them via email and all that, and once a week call and stuff. But it's one hour a week to cook about twenty people on the call, and so that's an asset. Okay, so that's how wealth is created. Okay, does that make me billions of euros? No, obviously not. That's not why I did it. But the point is, is that when you create assets, they continue to pay long after the work is done. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So you asked me a question uh, before we came on here about how does the mastermind relate to all of these things. So this is part of what we teach in this mastermind community. This is part of what's being, you know, success, to be successful in entrepreneurship, the only thing you need to know is you need to know how. And you need to be around people who are also entrepreneurial and are learning how. If you're expecting to be successful as an entrepreneur in isolation, there's a very, very, very slim chance you'll make it on your own, but most likely not. And that's not because you don't have the capabilities and you're not incredible and you're not talented and all the rest of it, but because you need a team. So whether it's just me, like we, we got the book out there, obviously we needed an editor. <laughs> yeah, write a book, no matter how good you are writing, you need an editor. You need a publisher. You need some tools. You need a proofreader, you know, those types of things. You need someone to, who knows how to make covers and you need to go through design process with a team. You can't do it on your own. 
And there's no reason for you to do it on your own anyway, because collaboratively people work better anyway. You get a better product because people have different skill sets. Whereas if you go into a, a business, everybody is hired for a different position. They're not all hired for the same position. It'd be ridiculous. So that's the way all business works. So what we do in the mastermind is we collaboratively work together with like-minded people who share the same goal of freeing up their time and developing extra additional income streams so that they can spend their time on something relevant. For some people, it's spending time with their family so that they can spend less time going to and from work to do stuff they're not that excited about, people that will likely have their job up uh, if they pass away quicker than their obituary will be in the newspaper. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's unfortunate. I know it sounds a bit harsh, but that's just yeah, the way it is because it is. The, the role needs to be done in a team. And if somebody's not there to do it, they need a replace mm-hmm. and get a replacement. So you wouldn't play a football match and go, oh, that lad had to come off because he hurt his foot, but you're, we like him, so we're not going to put on a substitute. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. So that's the way teams work organizations work so what we're doing in the mastermind is teaching people how to be the ceo of their own company their own organization and developing the skill sets necessary to leverage multiple streams of income and that's what we're about and that's what i'm passionate about um you are we are where we are simply because we can't see any further that's it it's as simple as that. And the reason why we are where we are is the result of the thoughts, actions, beliefs, and decisions we've made over the last five years. So thankfully, in the last five years, I've made some significantly better decisions than I made in any of the years prior to that because my life was a bloody mess, quite a, quite a significant period of it. So not, a, not like overly messy, but pretty messy, right? Like, like an eight out of ten messy, right? So the, my life in the last five years is completely transformed by it. not just coming into contact with this material, but also living it, breathing it, doing all that stuff. So if there's anything to take away from this, which I'm hoping there is at least some, some bits and pieces that people will take away, is that you can be, do, and have anything you want if you are willing to open and willing to learn a better way. If you're not, give it no more consideration and continue doing what you're doing. So I heard a, a great one recently. There are two types of people. There are types of people who want to turn off this uh, podcast and go back to watching Netflix, eat takeaways, and live in a life with no bumps in the road, no diversity, and just, ah, sure, it'll be grand. See what happens. And then there's the other type of people who say, you know what, I have to listen to this interview. I'm not fully sure as to what all that meant, but I am open and receptive to looking at another way of living my life with no expectation, but simply that I would like to learn what it is that I don't know because we do not know what we do not know. And anybody who tells me that, oh, I know this, I know that, and then you immediately, you immediately lim- limit yourself by saying, oh, I know that. So I may know some stuff, and that's great. It took a while for me to learn it. It wasn't a fast process by any means. Uh, I'm not the sharpest person out there. I wasn't the top of the class or any of that. Um, Definitely wasn't the bottom of the class, but I know loads of people who are successful in business who if you talk to them about anything other than what they do, not much of a conversation going on. So it's not a requirement for people to be super sonic sharp to be able to have lead a better lives, life uh, it's just not a requirement. You might have been told that, but it's total garbage. So I would encourage you, if any of this stuff is of interest and makes sense and has piqued your curiosity in some way, shape, or form, that you should uh, 
uh, reach out. Uh, I'll be happy to have a chat with you. I'll reach out to Aaron. I'm sure Aaron will pop up my uh, social media stuff, contacts, links to the book, all this sort of stuff. And you're welcome to come talk to me. Lloyd, I just want to say thank you so much for coming to the show, man, and sharing what you guys share. It's been a fabulous conversation. And wow, you're a wealth of knowledge. Well, it was a while coming. So I think, uh, I think I've earned it over time. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And uh, it is my pleasure to share. And I've always, you know what, I've always wanted to know things so that I can share them with other people. And it really, if you go and learn a lot of stuff and you don't share it with anybody, what's the point? You know, so I do definitely believe that if you are doing well, you should reach the hand down and, and help other people see a little bit of what the view looks like. Thank you for listening to The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Where the world's best stories are told. If you like, please post a review or subscribe to the show. To find out more, contact us at AaronOdowd.com. That's A-R-O-N-O-D-O-W-D.com. We're always ready to share another magnificent tale from the world's best storytellers. You. So stay tuned and rock on. <laughs>